This is Michael Easley in Context. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Rudy Kaus was four years old when you came from Germany to well, the United five. States. Five years five. old. Do you remember anything about yes. Germany? Oh, yeah. I remember a few things of that. And I certainly remember the flight, uh, the flight, the, uh, the uh, boat uh, ride over. Uh, in Germany, I just remember little things, uh, kind of the countryside and things of that nature. But it really becomes pretty vivid when we got uh, in Bremerhaven, Germany in 1952 when we uh, came to the United States. I got aboard a ship, the SS Ballou, my mom, my dad, my sister, and I. I can still remember the smell of the steel of the ship. Wow. Walking on board, the biggest thing that I thought I'd ever seen. Uh, to me, it was like an adventure. I can't hardly imagine how my parents locked the door on where we lived and moved. It's like me saying to you, well, you're going to move to China next week. You cannot and speak the language back, yeah. and you'll never come back and you cannot speak the language, but you make that decision and move. So, uh, yeah, I can make, we went through a storm on board that ship. At one point they battened down the hatches and dad and I went from deck to deck as a little kid exploring. He got me up near the conning tower, pulled the steel door open. I looked out and saw the front of the ship disappear into a wave. You're five years old. I'm five years old. Wow. It's burned in my memory. I can remember cruising into New York Harbor in 19th, June 10th, 52. How, how long was the trip? Do you remember? I think I think it might have been 14, I don't know if, yeah, if that yeah. seemed that long uh, or whatever. But I remember seeing the Statue of Liberty. Uh, it was a sunny day. Um, and Dad told me later that there were men lined on the ship, on the deck of the ship, and many of them were crying. I didn't know. I thought years later he told me. I'm a little kid just staring. But he said he, in his mind, he's saying, my goodness i've never seen anything like the skyline in new york city mm, mm. and then he's saying to himself you know how can i what am i going to do in this country well how am i going to provide for my family so the uh, we we had one wooden trunk that i still have at home that was the only thing we were allowed Fantastic. to bring for a family of four Fantastic. uh i've kept that and uh the united states government issued us each 14 dollars and uh, train tickets eventually got us to Milwaukee. We were sponsored by a Lutheran mission in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, huh. that, that allowed us to come over. And so uh, that's, where we, uh, that's where we headed off to. Remember going to school? Uh, kindergarten, I had to go to, uh, Mom would take me, took me to kindergarten, and I about dragging me every day, and I'd come home crying every day because I thought the kids at school are laughing at this dumb little foreign kid who doesn't mm-hmm. know how to talk English. Mm-hmm. Um, you still have your German? Yes, we still speak. Uh, well, we did. Mom and Dad are both gone, but right. that's all we did was talk German around the house. I knew some Russian even then. Mom and Dad were both born in the Ukraine. See, father, my dad was in the Russian army, was captured mm. by the Germans. My mother was uh, became a refugee, was a school teacher, uh, became a refugee out of a village. And they were both from the Ukraine. They met each other in the southern part of Germany after World War II, and that's where we were born. But fortunately, in the American sector as opposed to you yeah. know, on the Soviet side. So, yeah. So, uh, so they would kick it in. If I was in trouble, which was pretty often, they'd kick it into Russian, and, uh, and I knew they were talking about me. $14 and a train ticket. You end up in Milwaukee. Yeah. You lived there 20 years? Yeah, about 20 years about or something, years. you know. In 1970, you go to the United States Air Force. Yeah, I, what it is, I think for me, Michael, I think about it, and I, I and I talk about this a lot lately because I wasn't until I was about 60 that I began to think that a lot of us, most of us, I mean, we're a product of how we grew up and the things that sure. were a part of us as he grew up. 
And the way I grew up and the way I look at it in my life is that uh, mom and dad came over here and dad, they were just, they were very staunch. Education was the most important mm-hmm. thing from Europe and saving money. You know, mm-hmm. there's no such thing as spending. You take a portion and everything and save. And every Saturday we cleaned the house. The work ethic. Uh, work ethic. All of this. Dad went to work every mo- every day at uh, 5.30 in the morning and he came home and he was faithful to his wife. I remember the first time I watched a football game with him on TV, Green Bay Packers, little black and white TV. He looked, turned to me, and he said, they're killing themselves over one ball. Why don't they give them each one and send them home? Yeah. To him, soccer was German foosball. constitution, baby. Yeah. You know, foosball. That's what, that's what he believed foosball, in. Yeah. See, so then I grew up with that kind of surrounding environment, and then we're all different. My sister and I were so different, she got straight A's. And my parents, without even knowing it, would invariably say to me, what is wrong with you? You're never going to mount anything. Mm-hmm. Are you dumb? What is wrong? Why can't you? Well, I must be dumb. I get into those high school years, and I think about this, and this is what I've, what's kind of gone through my mind as I try to figure out where my life came from, is that I had a, I had a coach in high school who uh, I either did exactly what he wanted me to do, basketball coach, captain of the team, or else he just wear me. And never yes. once do I recall him saying you did a good job. Great job. I remember I, I talked to an 80-year-old man once who told me what a coach had said to him when he was a kid. And he said, I, it never left me. I felt worthless. So that's a part mm. of without even knowing it. And I think the more I, I think about it in life, that there are not all of us, but a lot of us who have had that experience where somebody planted a seed in us of that respect. Why can't you get those good? They thought mm-hmm, they were doing good mm-hmm. and right, but I'm part of that era. And if you're fortunate, which I, you know, I wasn't, you have a parent or someone that says to you, you're magnificent. Right. You've got an ability you with your do this. music. You can do this. You're going to be great someday. And then my conclusion now, 60 years old when I finally thought it was, there's a lot of us walking around in this world who have spent our whole lives either trying to prove somebody right or prove somebody wrong. I've got a thumbnail philosophy of ministry that everybody's under-encouraged. Everybody needs a friend. And you know we don't understand the power of encouragement. And some of us had that critical parent or critical nature. And if, if it was unusual enough that you had someone that said, man, Rudy, you're really good at something, yeah. you'd get up early and stay up late doing it. In a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah. But when you don't get that, I, I, my, my father, till the day he died, would say to me, son, keep your, in broken English, keep your mouth closed, be grateful you have a job. This is a wonderful country. Mm-hmm. We are immigrants. And that's the way, so I, that, that never, I think I always had a bit of an immigrant's mentality of it. I, I grew up with no self-confidence, partially because of what was said and surrounding around. Dad never played sports. His idea of being a man was the fact that he worked hard, was faithful to his family, provided the check, did the work. Yeah. No such thing as, get out there, kid, you did play ball. Did he ever ball. tell you he loved you? I don't remember until later. That did was he ever tell you the- he was proud of you? Uh, yeah, there would be times, okay. but, uh, but in, in things that were athletic or such, uh, it was more subtle cause he didn't know the game wasn't that important, mm-hmm. but that's an interesting thought. He would tell me to some degree, it was a good dad. He wasn't one of these sure, brown sure. beaters over. That was, that was a very quiet, gentle soul in, in most ways. Mm-hmm. So because I mean, I wanted to flunk, I came out of high school, didn't do well, couldn't get into a good college, tried a technical school for a year, played pool instead of winning, going to classes, <laughs> uh, finished my, my one, my first year with a 0.94 grade point average, cut 74 classes and had a draft number of 46 in 1966 in Vietnam, uh, was going. Ergo the Air Force. And so, and well, I made the decision. I said, in the Army, I don't know what I'll do, but I'd love to, I love airplanes, 
So I thought I'd be an air traffic controller. Certainly, Mr. Kalis, sign here. And they made me an air policeman. <laughs> there you go, MP. Well, just before we get too far off, thanks for your service. Well, I, I, that, that's kind of people say that it is a joy. I will say that the four years in the military started a change in me that, that I wouldn't be sitting here today if it wasn't because of that. So if that's what they did, I don't think I did anything for them. I walked around airplanes well, but you and I guarded a and, few things. And I think our country uh, needs to be reminded that yeah. men and women uniform need to be respected and appreciated. And, and I just didn't want it to go by. Well, Thanks for your service. You're kind. There, there are a lot of young, I tell, speak a lot of schools and you talk with young people. And oftentimes I'll say, if you if you have no direction in your life, you need to think about the military because it gives you, it'll force you. Now, I don't want you to go, you know, I, I don't want my child to get killed in Iraq. Obviously, right. I don't want to say what you do, yeah. but... But uh, the discipline of it changed, so, so I came out of there. And after the four years, you go back to college? Yeah, I, 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 it was hard to get back in because they looked at my old transcripts. I went to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, <laughs> UWM, and Mr. Kalis, I don't know if we can take you. Uh, <laughs> so they took me on what was called final probation. Pro, yeah. Final uh-huh. probation. And then people said, how are you getting broadcasting? Because back in high school, I, I literally almost stuttered until I was about 15. I couldn't stand in front of an English class and give a speech to anybody. Rudy, you have flown an F-16? Well, I didn't fly it. No, no, I flew in it. Ah. I got a ride. I can't fly an F-16. Well, it but says t- here on your bio, you flew an F-16. Well, then, that, that, you know, take the in. <laughs> put the word that, in in there. That's one of those uh, yeah. evangelistic, yeah. Let me tell you, the, the reason for that, I've done that, uh, and I, that was a few years ago, the Thunderbirds came in. I'm still, people say, boy, you've got I've driven race cars. I hit the wall at the Nashville Speedway. Well, let's talk about that. You uh, had a you had a, a pretty oh, serious look, accident. I got 151 stitches in my head. I, I you know I practiced. How old were you? Uh, well, what is it? 99. I'm 67, so it was 1999. So what? 52 or something. Can I count? <laughs> Am I Good somewhere? Enough. Close enough. Close enough, yeah. And practicing for a race there, and I hit an oil slick and just T-boned the wall. Hit it so hard, I had glasses over my full-face helmet, but hit it so hard that my face shot forward even with a harness, bent the steering wheel and embedded the glasses in my forehead. Mm. The first guy that got to the uh, to the car said to me, Rudy, it's the best wreck I've seen here in years. <laughs> if you didn't have a seatbelt on, I think you could have cleared the grandstand. That was encouragement, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. This is apparently blood is going on. I said, can we Do fix the it? car? Oh, yeah. It was like slow motion. See, okay. It was like, you know what I learned out of that from a spiritual standpoint? If I die in a car crash or something happens... I, I could, you can easily, you go into shock and you can easily float from this side over to the other side and be with the Lord. Mm-hmm. At least that's mm-hmm. a, because I, I was, I, mm-hmm. a shock set in, slow motion, hit the wall. I could not breathe very well, didn't lose consciousness, thinking of things, went into a different state and could have just been with our Lord. So I think, and when I think of plane crashes and things, I don't know. I won't know until I'm up there with him, right. but I think there's a certain safeguard that God puts around that. So I've done that, and the reason I do that, and I'll let you go from that, is because back to that little kid, I'm still trying to find out if I'm a coward. That's why I go flying. I've gone skydiving. Uh, the F-16 was a chance to go. They didn't think I would. They had to give me a big uh, health exam because I was yeah. 59 years old yeah. at the time. Yeah, you know, will this guy last? Gave me a barf bag. I loved it because I'm fi- trying, still trying to find out if I'm a coward. Mm. Rudy is the co-anchor of News for Today in Nashville area. If you're not from the Nashville area, you don't know, but Rudy is quite a legend in the Middle Tennessee parts. You were a sports director for WSMV-TV uh, since no, 1974? I came here in July of 1974. 
I worked in Green Bay. And that's, uh, you know, we talk about this because we talk about faith. It's part of what God did. We all go. We grow, come out of colleges. We're looking for jobs. I get that first opportunity in Green Bay. Eventually, I started to do some sports, lobbying a little bit. I'm there about a year and a half, almost two years. Sports director quits, gets mad, quits. I'm going, ooh. I'm making $8,000 a year, you know, yeah, waving at yeah. anything. They got caught off guard. They let me be the, do the sports. Uh, meanwhile, they hired a consultant agency from a large company that working with stations around the country. <laughs> After a month, they called me into an office. Two guys with suits are sitting there and said, Rudy, you should think about getting out of broadcasting. You're, you're, you know, you're a friendly enough guy, but you're just, you're not aggressive enough. You need to be in your face. You got to do, they wanted that sort of mm-hmm. stuff way mm-hmm. back then. And it's interesting now because you and I both are aware in our communications business, that you watch television, you watch politicians, you watch broadcast, the, the more cynical, the more negative, the more critical, the louder I can shout, the more intelligent I, I am. And if I can shout the ratings you, go up. the ratings, they think, or they feel that. And yet I think it's novel almost to go in another way. So I'm not part of that world. I, from there, I'm just disgusted. And for me, it was the same kid back to mom and dad saying, Rudy, you're not good enough. See, that's mm-hmm. followed me all mm-hmm. my life. Wait, what's wrong with you? Why can't you make it? You, so, but I, and then you find out if, you, if you're going to quit, if you're going to give it up and just run off somewhere else. And something dogmatically said, I don't want to send out resumes. One of them was to Nashville, and they hired me. And I came here in July of 74. Um, I thought people down here didn't wear shoes. I'd never been down south, you know. <laughs> and uh, I said, I'm going to stay a year and 40 and years later. And go from there. Well, from, from the Nashville community, they think you walk on water. They love you. It's, it's a great relationship for Nashville and for you. You've interviewed Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, Jack Nicholas, Wayne Gretzky, Daryl Waltrip, a local hero as well, um, on and on and on. Uh, hey, terrible question, but some of the ones you enjoy the most. Well, uh, uh, probably at the very, uh, Daryl and I, uh, contemporaries age-wise, I saw him win his, uh, I think he he's like a four months uh, older than me, so same age. I, I love racing, came here, I saw, I was here when he won his very first race at the National Speedway in 75, I was there when he won the Daytona 500, I was there when he was, raced his last race, I've always called him a dear friend, he's very, very interesting, he's very vocal, and he's one of those guys who, uh, you know, it's just, just a fascinating interview. Probably my all-time favorite interview, uh, in many ways, is Gary Player, the, go- the golfer Gary Player, because... He, he's one of these people who speaks substance when he talks to you. It's not superficial. I can tell that he's interested in me because he stares right into your eyes. He says meaningful things. I, I paid attention to him being around other people. Mm. I saw him in a tournament where he went to, it was a little close by, and he goes to a young standard bearer kid, and he says, young man, tell me about your education. You may not remember everything that you have learned, but you will always remember the effort it took to learn it. Wow. So there's a depth to what he says. So mm-hmm. I, I, and I had a couple of lengthy opportunities. So he sits very high on the list. I, I kind of enjoy them all because I, sure. I like you, because I, I like people. I like to look to see if they're looking me in the eye. I mm-hmm. like to see the tone. I want to hear if there's an arrogance, if there's not. It's just I'm fascinated with people. Biggest surprise from an interview? Big surprise? I, I got conned once. A big surprise was a guy who called me up and he said he was going to be a race car driver at Talladega and met me, meet me over at this Nashville Speedway. I've got a truck there and I'm going to show you we're going to start a brand new team. We go over and do an interview. Looking forward to it and, uh, you know, it was fine. We put him on a great team from Nashville. We watch. He goes down to Talladega. He qualifies for the race. Great. We're making a big deal out of him. The green flag falls and he pulls off of the track. 
and they and everything leaves. He didn't even race one lap. He was a flimflam man. He'd conned his way into the whole thing. He'd never <laughs> raced. We went to his race shop. It wasn't even there. And I said to myself, here you are, a magnificent broadcaster and a journalist, and you flat out got conned by some guy. So that's the, I suppose, surprise-wise. Surprise. Yeah, yeah, I didn't look real smart in that case. Without naming names, uh, a big disappointment. Um, in, in principle, in response, in... Yeah, there have been a few, uh, a few people. You're you're right. Uh, people that um, uh, there's some of them in the golfing world where where I really got kind of surprised. They're they're very flamboyant. They're very outgoing. Very hey, people conscious. And yet, until the camera turned off, they were very grumpy and grousy and mm. complaining about everything. And turned the camera on, it's like a light switch went off, and I said, oh, "Okay, it's showtime." Mm -hmm. So those kinds of things. Uh, if you're going to be a grouch, be a grouch all the time, and. I can take that, but but you know don't 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 play con with. Be me. authentic as a grouch. Don't yeah. cut, don't don't hide behind it. Yeah. Um, and you look back on a, a career like you've had, and um, I mean, you probably don't feel decorated. No. But but there are people that would look at you and say, "Wow, that's a decorated broadcasting career. It's it's a it's a great ride." Uh, what would you what do you tell them? I I had um, I heard a great line from the uh, from Bruce Matthews who retired from the Tennessee Titans. Seventeen years in the NFL, fourteen years of Pro Bowler, I think, magnificent. And he gave me a line that I use all the time. He said, "Every day I went to work afraid that they would find out that I'm a fraud." Mm. And I and and because of my work, and I think you probably feel in some degree, I go every single day, even after the. It's been there like I've been there one day. I have I have I cannot go on anything I did yesterday because I I may not get the information today. I feel like every single day I'm this little immigrant kid who's trying to prove that he still can is worth being there. So none of it feels to me, and I, and I still my dad was Leo Kalis. I'm still Leo Kalis' son with a little immigrant inside of me, wow. and I can't believe. All these things. And all I've done is basically outlive everybody else, and that's why I'm still here. <laughs> Just keep showing up and being faithful, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you've got a lot of outside interest. You work with ALS. You work with the, uh, the Jason Foundation. Yeah, to help prevent youth suicide. Fast, powerful story because Clark Flatt uh, came to me, and he's, he's, uh, his son Jason was the one who committed suicide. Uh, he, he and I, on the day his son was born— met each other standing next to each other it was the same day my daughter was born and we were we were looking through the glass at our newborn children and little did i know that 16 years later he would call me and he would ask me if that is uh, telling me that his son had mm -hmm. had committed suicide and what i consider being with the organization i don't do much i speak on their behalf mm -hmm. i i, I, mm -hmm. I champion as any way that i can i'm not on the board because they have serious work to do but it but it is a a passion and and every year when i when i know it's my daughter's birthday mm -hmm. i also know it's jason's birthday mm -hmm. and i have to call clark and connie his wife yeah. yeah. God does things, you know. I mean, part of our conversation that he he lets you go through things so that you're ready to do other things. The ALS is that I went to there's a Bordeaux hospital here for for years. Um, I went to visit a guy named Ricky. Somebody said Rudy, Rudy, Ricky has MS, has never been out of bed, really. He's in a wheelchair. He would love to meet you. And I yeah. finally talked me into it, so I go over there. And I do my little, you know, complimentary, hey, uh, Ricky, how you doing? Good to see you, my friend. Nice day. I spent about 20 minutes. Well, Ricky, I got to go. So I hit the, I'm about to hit the door, and Ricky says, oh, Rudy. I said, oh, yeah, Ricky, would, would you come back next week? I'm going, oh, good Lord. I, I did what I'm supposed to do. A grin, smile, gave you a little time. Yeah, sure, Ricky. 
I went back the next week, another half hour, and God's and I'm about to leave, and he said, Ernie, would you come back next mm. week? And it's like God said to me, you're going to go back, boy, until you like it. Mm. And so for five years, I visited him every week, and then one week, they came to me, a guard there said, I want you to meet somebody else. And I went down to Southern Hallway, and lying there is Chrissy, who weighed 53 pounds, had had ALS uh, since 1991, and, and could not communicate except blinking with her eyes and, and smiling, and, and, you know, in that regards. And I visited her every week for eight years until she passed away. And then the ALS Association called me out of the blue and said, I don't know, we, we had thought about asking, would you consider host, uh, hosting a golf tournament or something for us? And I said, Lord, I know why you mm-hmm. had me bleed and mm-hmm. understand. I asked her one time, and she could communicate. There, you know, there's a small little way of communicating with a thing where one letter at a time, right. in some small way. And she, I once asked her, I said, do you ever get discouraged? Uh, you know, and she said, I wake up every morning at 4 a.m., and I realize I'm trapped in my own body. The, mm. And then she said, but the weaker I get, this takes a long time to write this out, but the stronger my faith is because it's the only thing I have left. Mm. And so I go... I suppose I asked her once, I get poison ivy, and, I, and I'm sitting there scratching somewhere if I'm cutting grass. I said, I said Miss Chrissy, what do you do when you itch? And she I pray. That's all mm. I can do. Mm. So that, that's reality. It's perspective, isn't it? Yeah. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Proverbs 16, 9. In his life, a man is hard. man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You know, my parents raised me. They, I don't know how they afforded it. They sent my sister and I to Christian grade school, Christian high school. And my story of faith is that I walked out when I was 18 years old because I went in the military, or 19 in the military, and ran off. And, and, in 19, and in 19, when I was 31 years old, here in Nashville, again, having been rejected at that time to become the sports director to the station, I'd been here four years, sports director left. I certainly thought in this case I was qualified, should have gotten the job. The hardest thing in my life is pride. It just mm. eats me up. Mm-hmm. It's the ego of our business. And they didn't hire me. And everywhere I went, people said, I, well, Rudy, why didn't you get that job? Well, I didn't want it. I, I don't have the big drug habit. I don't have the powerful story of, of loved ones having been killed. For me, it's a daily f- battle with my ego and my pride. And I was driving down the road one day, and I hit the steering wheel of the car, and I'm going, God, help me. I'm sick and tired of being phony, this stuff beating on me. And three days later, I used to play basketball at a YMCA in Green Hills, Y. Went to a place across the street to go eat a hamburger afterwards. Sitting there, a room full of people, and this man walks around, and, I, and a black man, and I say that because the room was full of folks that looked just like me. He didn't even know me from Adam, but he sat down in front of me. He said, are you all right? You look like you got something in your mind. I'm alone. I don't know if I'm showing any signs of anything. I don't know what's going on. And he sat there for two hours and talked to me about faith and about a God who loved me. He called me the next day to have lunch. He called. He wasn't even like Sam. wasn't even from Nashville. Next day, on October 10th, 1978, at Window Seat at what used to be called Bishop's Corner Restaurant on West End Avenue, he said, "Would you like to pray and have Jesus Christ be the Lord of your life?" And I said, "I, I certainly would." And I said, "He said, let's hold my hand and we'll pray." I said, "Wait wow. a minute, now, brother." We're sitting here at a window seat, two men holding hands, ain't going to work real good. Hold my hand. And so we, we just prayed. And I walked out of there, no big halo around my head. Two things happened to me. Number one, God changed my mouth. And secondly, he put a burning desire in me to know, want to know something about him. And so uh, what God has done in my life has been a gradual change over a long yeah. period of time. 
everything yeah. after that. That's of course, exciting. God is a sense of humor, I tell people, because yes. I used to be, I used to think I was pretty nice looking. I had a lot of thick black hair, and God said, that boy's a little cocky. I believe I'll snatch the hair off his head, and I am no longer just another pretty face. <laughs> but but you've got a head that can pull it off. Oh, is Some that right? people can't. Some people well, can't. Well, I'm not I sure can't. what that means, I but, can't but I have no No, you no look options. good. You look good. I, I like my hair that way, and my wife says, no. <laughs> oh, so you've got you, a gorgeous. You will have hair. Well, yeah. you know, we never like what we have, right? <laughs> How do you carry your faith in, obviously, you're outspoken in ALS and the in the Jason Foundation and I Am Second and all that, but there's still, there's a tension. You're in a world. You're yeah. in an entertainment, a media world, yep. a sports world. Uh, how do you carry your faith in that? Where I've you... realized this, uh, that the, the longer I walk in faith, the more of my life is diametrically opposed to what's considered successful in my business because I can't shout at you, but I can be enthusiastic. I average 60, 70 speaking engagements a year, whatever, and I can openly talk about my faith, but I try to do it in a way whereby I'm not beating anybody over the head with mm-hmm. it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just let it flow from who we are. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, God uses a bunch of imperfect vessels right I oh mean. yeah but but there's a beauty to apologizing you know absolutely I've, I've, we have post newscast meetings or used to have more than now and i went in there one time and i had done something wrong with the labeling because of course they said why did that and that wrong video showed up and what is it and who's the fault and i said well wait a minute i'm the one i blew it i put the wrong label on i put the you know wrong place i said it wrong the blame is all mine. Silence. Stops. Ten yep. seconds. All right, what else we got to talk Stops. about? Yeah. I want to thank you for being with us. Again, thanks for listening to the broadcast. You can find more information at michaelincontext.com. Thanks for joining us. This is Michael Easley in Context.